Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Good evening, everybody uh, who's joined us and welcome to the launch party for the UK edition of How Not To Be Afraid, Seven Ways To Live When Everything Seems Terrifying by Gareth Higgins. Uh, we have Gareth here who will be reading from his book. We have Cole Morton, a journalist, author himself and broadcaster. He and Gareth have been friends for more than 20 years. Um, they know each other very well. They are not afraid to be rude to each other. Um, so expect some fun in the conversation after Gareth has uh, read something from the book. The, there is an offer on the book, 20% off, but welcome Cole as our special guest tonight and particular welcome to you, Gareth. You spend some of your time in America and we're very happy to have you on uh, nearer soil. We're speaking to you tonight in Northern Ireland. Uh, so Gareth, op over to you um, to say your own hello and uh, to read from your wonderful new book. Thank you, Christine. Thanks uh, for the lovely job that you and all the folks at Canterbury have done uh, in uh, making this book so beautiful and, and uh, bringing it uh, to the UK and Ireland. And, uh, and thank you, Cole. I'm looking forward to doing this with you. And hi, everybody who's here. I'm going to just read a little bit to get us started. This is from the introduction, a good place to start. Fear is one of the most powerful things we cannot see, universally recognized and with implications for everything in life, relationships, health, politics, and even the limits of what we can hope for as a species. Yet there is something more powerful than fear, and it's also available to everyone all the time. That something is the stories we tell. How Not to Be Afraid is based on the idea that popular beliefs about fear are mistaken and that we can transform our fear through storytelling. Love, the willingness to give ourselves for the sake of the common good, is the foundation from which these better stories emerge, becoming the antidote to fear. A small bad idea cannot be erased, yet it can be replaced by a larger and better story. So here's a larger, better story that you might wish to try on. Fighting, fleeing, and freezing are all natural reactions to fear and sometimes may be the least bad options we can see. However, they're all manifestations of oppositional, not creative energy. And just as we know war is not a solution to the world's problems, battling fear doesn't work either. What does work is learning the path of a better story, lived in community, grounded by elders, and with a purpose beyond personal gain. Without the kind of creative empathy that emerges in such a story, we may blame ourselves for more errors than we could possibly have committed. We may fear more booby traps 
than could ever actually be laid. We may feel that we are responsible for fixing everything and feeling overwhelmed will be a completely familiar experience. Finding our place in a better story can help us let go of our tendency to try to control things that should never be our burden alone. More than that, while the stories embodied in our fear are often distortions of reality, learning how not to be afraid means tenderly seeking the wisdom underneath the raw material of our most terrorized moments. Instead of erasing our fears by trying to beat them away or getting around them, perhaps we can transcend and include them, even in the very core of our being. This means not pretending that there is no trouble in the world or that it's not my problem. Indeed, the current moment has stirred anxiety in profound ways, and each of us has a responsibility and a gift to share in helping. Some things are indeed worthy of a healthy fear, but they're usually not the things that distract us the most. We should be afraid of mosquitoes more than people, of cars more than war. Most of all, we might be wiser to fear the unlived life more than the monster under the bed. Yet whatever we're afraid of, we're invited not to deny our fears, but to tell a bigger story about them. Many of us feel overwhelmed by anxiety, exhausted by activism, and at times even in dread of the future. Yet these feelings of anxiety, exhaustion, and dread derive their power from a story. We're here to uncover how story shapes our lives, to take a look at how fears depend on the story we tell about them, and to imagine a new story. The story we believe about fear was probably built by someone else who may or may not have known wisdom about what was best for us. That's only one of the reasons that we don't necessarily have to believe it anymore. Although we probably do need to help, help to discover and build a new one. It will not serve us to speak of fighting or seeking to defeat fear because adversarial force always boomerangs. Instead, we are invited to be engaged in creating a shelter for larger, more truthful stories. Better stories about fear can transform these burdens into fuel for a more beautiful life, for a more peaceful world, helping us find calm amid the storm. When the shelter is strong, better stories can even guide and empower us to help calm the storm itself. This book is about how to build that shelter. Good job, mate. Hello. Thank you for reading that, Gareth. <laughs> it's, it's lovely to uh, actually hear your reading voice. I don't think I've ever heard your reading voice before. Very authoritative, very guru-like. Well done. <laughs> um, so for those who are coming to this new, I'm going to start really simple. Who are you? What are you trying to do here? But but let's let's start with who you are. How do you introduce yourself these days? Well, um, I say my name's Gareth, and I grew up in the north of Ireland, and I live in North Carolina, and uh, I'm married to Brian Ammons. He's a Baptist minister. I'm a storyteller and a writer. 
I'm glad to be a work in progress and I'd like to know more about you. Great. I mean, I, one of the things I want to pick up on is that uh, there's a, there is a, a personal element that runs through the book, which talks about your own experience of conflict growing up in Northern Ireland and all of that. But, but, and we'll come to some of that. But first of all, I mean, it's a hell of a, a claim, isn't it? A title that says, how not to be afraid. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've all been looking for that answer, <laughs> especially in these times. Uh, is there any part of you that thinks, oh, I might be, uh, I'm afraid not to be able to deliver on that promise? <laughs> if, the, if I had titled the book, How to Cure Your Fear, yeah, I'd be, I'd be more concerned about that. But as, as you know, the, 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 the title is kind of a trick. Um, mm. The title is not How to Stop Feeling Fear Ever. The title is uh, How Not to Be Afraid in the same way that What Not to Wear was not about don't ever wear anything. Um, and uh, How Not to Be Afraid is not about stop fearing things. Actually, uh, fear is inevitable and necessary and even helpful. The, the problem is that in the culture that you and I share, uh, and presumably the folk who are on uh, watching this or who might read the book, uh, our culture hasn't initiated us into being able to tell the difference between healthy, wise fear and what I would call toxic fear. So mm. the book could just as easily be called uh, How to Be Afraid Well, and it certainly doesn't make a claim to be the comprehensive answer. Having said that, it's right about a lot of things. And the things, <laughs> the things, the things that it's the right. Things that, yeah. yeah, the things that it's right. I should about, hope so. Uh, the things that it's right about are what other wise people have taught me. Okay. And like, like everything, you know. I even think, you know, so you're, is, you're, is this is this a compendium of other people's wisdom? Well, that's what every every good book is. Good right? answer. Like, good answer. Um, and uh, I was just going to say, you're a beautiful writer, but any emotionally mature writer or artist knows that they are standing in a in a flow of energy that is coming mm. from everything that's gone before them even the mm. bad art right mm. you know even even the bad politics mm. even the bad mm. religion informs the good politicians and the good mm. religious leaders uh, so it's 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 more than a compendium of other people's wisdom because it's partly about how that wisdom has affected my life and there is a memoir element to the book, but it's not an autobiography. And I didn't write stories about myself from the perspective of, hey, look at me, or I need some validation. It's more, hopefully, when you read about my story, you'll see yourself. You'll, you'll be reminded of things that have happened to you. Uh, and uh, the shelter that I have found uh, might encourage you with your own shelter. Mm -hmm. uh, and then to co-create a conscious shelter of your own because you don't just find shelter, you, you build it. Uh, you build it and you, you weave it out of the wounds and the gifts that have come to you for whatever reason. There was a uh, part of that shelter analogy of yours which really I can't stop thinking about. Uh, you say um, that if, 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 you, if it rains, you get wet. If you build a shelter the rain becomes irrelevant yeah. because there's a shelter there. The, the rain never reaches you. Yeah. And, in, and as we'll discuss, you know, in, in, in the kind of project of creating a story shelter and finding a way to tell our own stories, 
creating that shelter, which means that those exhausting, anxiety-provoking other stories n become irrelevant. They never get to mm -hmm. us. I, I, I was really moved by that. And I should say that, you know, although I've kind of been playful because we're old mates here kicking off, this is a book that, you know, really truly has moved and provoked me. You know, I mean, a, an old friend asks you to read a book and you go, yeah, okay, I'll get around to that. <laughs> I, I, pick, I picked this up and I didn't stop. And when I got to the end, uh, I was, I started to make plans about how I might adjust my life in the light of the wisdom that you shared, which, I mean, I have to tell you, I read a lot of books and that doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so let's, let's talk about the structure of it. Let's give, give for those who haven't read it, and I see on the, on the uh, comments, people can comment as we go along. Uh, Jill says, I love this book. Gareth always says something that resonates with me. And I, I agree with that totally. But for those who haven't, do you mm -hmm. want to just kind of walk us through the structure yeah. of it and the ambition yeah. of it and what you're trying to do? Sure. So the, the book's in two parts. The first part is about what is fear? Where does fear come from? Where is it useful? And why is there a problem with fear? And, uh, you know, the simple summary of that is that fear is an evolutionary uh, uh, inevitability. It, it, it arose in our brains from in the ancient past, uh, our, our forebears being chased by saber-toothed tigers or rampaged by the neighboring uh, village. Um, and uh, at its best, fear keeps us safe. It stops us from walking too close to the edge of a cliff or it, it makes us turn look, look when we're crossing the road, mm. you know? Mm. Um, or don't put your hand too close to the fire. Um, <clears throat> And it can also protect us around, you know, don't give too much of yourself away. Mm. You're going to, you're going to drain yourself or learn to trust people before you share too much of yourself, you know? Um, and the problem is we all have these uh, pub publication company devices that uh, <laughs> we carry around with us. And, uh -huh. um, uh, but prior to the internet, there was still a bombardment of information. Once the industrial revolution happened and we moved out of villages and humans, humans prior to us might never have known more than about 30 people. And now we have, you know, Facebook has to put a, a maximum of 5,000 on your friend list, right? Uh, so <laughs> maybe on yours. <laughs> no, I, I've not, I've never reached my max. I've never reached my max. Um, um, <laughs> um if you want a friend cole he's a lovely person and it seems like he's very he's very open he's got room he's got room um and um so we're been bombarded by information mm. that our brains haven't evolved to be able to cope with because mm. the our brain chemistry can't tell the difference between different kinds of information it can't our brains alone can't tell if this is true if it's propaganda uh, if it's deliberate uh, stirring up of fear or if it's wisdom. The only thing that can tell the difference between different qualities of information is the storytelling mechanism. And that's what the second part of the book is about, where I look at seven specific fears from the fear of being alone to the fear of a meaningless life to the mm. fear of death. And through uh, spiritual wisdom stories, neuroscience, sociology, and my own personal experience i write about how these fears manifest and then practices that we can adopt that will help us live sheltered from those fears it doesn't mean that the facts surrounding those fears aren't real 
you're in a shelter and it's raining doesn't mean that the rain has stopped, right? Mm. It's still mm. raining, but you're sheltered from it. And I always use this example, Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, arising out of his experience of being in a concentration camp and his wife being murdered by the Nazis. You know, it would be one of the most, gosh, tasteless doesn't even begin to cut it. It would be one of the most outrageous things to say that because he had built a shelter in his mind that that suddenly meant he wasn't in a concentration camp anymore or that uh, the, the phenomenon of concentration camps wasn't real. No, it's not that at all. It's that for Viktor Frankl, the external threat was less relevant to how he experienced it on the inside because he had managed something that happened to him to help him construct a way of interpreting reality that meant it was less relevant. You know, rain is, a, is an easier analogy to use than concentration mm. camps. Yeah. But I truly believe if this, if this if this doesn't have the potential to be true for even the worst circumstances, I'm not sure it's of much use. We're just, you know, we're just playing games. Otherwise, and there are plenty of people who've been through the worst circumstances, who've written about what got them through was these two things. And this is, I'll, I'll wrap up saying what I'm saying about the second part of the book. There's really two kinds of practices that we can adopt that will help create a shelter uh, between us and fear. One is personal practices that slow us down and that start to repair our inner lives, the way we respond emotionally. There's one very simple practice I write about earlier in the book, which is just about slowing down your breathing. And then there's other, there's a lot more complex ways of doing that. But mm. you know, uh, without forcing yourself, just sit still, slow down your breathing, do it for about a minute. And then as you inhale, uh, call to your mind an image or a thought that causes you to think about gratitude, compassion, or love as you inhale. It could be a person, picture of a person's face. It could be a place you've been to. It could be an event in your past. It can even be a fictional character as long as it stimulates the sense of gratitude, compassion, or love. And as you inhale, let that get clearer and deeper in your mind. When I do this, I often imagine I'm looking at a drive-in movie theater screen in the desert. And as I'm looking at the screen, the image is getting projected stronger and clearer and stronger and clearer. And then when you exhale, send that image with your mind to every cell of your body. And then the next time you exhale, send that image to people you know who need it. And the next time you do it, send it to the whole world. Now, you can learn to do this in a minute. And there are people who seem to have learned to spend 24 hours a day doing this, right? And I think most of us somewhere in between those, those mm. two things. And there's neuroscience to back this up. So that's one of the practices. That's an internal practice. And then the other practice is about community and connecting with other people who are on the same journey toward building a shelter about fear. And I'm sure we'll talk about that at more length. Uh, later. That's the structure of the book. What is fear and what are we going to do about it? And then it ends with some blessings uh, about specific fears. Thank you. I was itching to jump in on two or three points there, as you could tell. Yeah. On one of them, one of them, I mean, uh, when you describe uh, that that process of, of gratitude and sending it out to the whole world, yeah. when you said that, I was thinking of 
the Gareth that I first met 20 years ago, who if I had said to him, well, what you need to do is you need to visualize gratitude and then send it out to every to everyone in the world, would have gone, uh, what, hello? Uh, who is this kind of um, snake oil salesman, right? I'm not, <laughs> accusing, I'm not accusing you of being a snake oil salesman. What I'm saying is um, I, I, when we take little, you know, when, when I ask you to pray see the book, um, what, what that doesn't necessarily take into account is the context and the depth and the resonance and the personal experience behind the things that you're saying there. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I just was a bit kind of worried that you were undervaluing your own kind of process there a bit in, in the way that the way that you shared it. So, well, um, it's difficult to do when we're when we're having this conversation. No, and if you're, you know, the, so I think what you're you're reaching for. I'm not sure that I would have thought you were a snake oil salesman. I actually think I was desperate enough that I would have taken anything. Well, yeah. Maybe. Um, and um, and I and that's what I was doing because I really did grow up with a lot of fear and terror, really. And it wasn't just about the troubles in Northern Ireland. In fact, it, it would be dishonest to say that that I felt visceral terror about the troubles uh, as a child. That came later. That actually came in adult life after the ceasefires as a sort of delayed trauma reaction. More looking oh, back on the on the insanity of the of what we were growing up around. And also the fact that a lot of us here in the north of Ireland had become so resilient. We'd had to become so resilient, my parents' generation particularly, that we, we downplayed. like Just like you're saying I might be doing for myself, we downplayed how bad it was because it was mm -hmm. a way of getting through. Uh, but the, the truth is that it's just a matter of chance for most of us that we weren't killed. Most of us, my generation, my parents' generation, it's just a matter of chance. You, you weren't in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the terror that I felt viscerally on the inside was about God, about religion, and about the belief that there was something wrong with me because I was growing up uh, questioning my sexual orientation. I didn't even have the language for that uh, as, a, as a child in the 80s. Uh, all I, the only vocabulary I had was uh, you're, you're sick, you're sinful, or you're demon-possessed. Mm. And that certainly created terror and there was a terror of the world there was a terror of what people would think of me um there was a terror of not having security and there was a terror of leaving the community that was telling me these things because i didn't have any other community and they were also well-intended good people who, who 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 i think were right about some things and totally wrong about this right <laughs> um that that not only did you have the sense of you can't leave this community because you've nowhere else to go, but to leave the community was also to leave God and to potentially doom yourself to hell. Uh, uh, so that's the terror that I knew. And when you and I met, I was, I was in transition from yeah. one way of thinking into an, another way. And I'm not a place where I can even look back on what some of the gifts of that world were as well, which were mostly to do with believing you could do something meaningful with your life. And I also, in in that more conservative religious world, discovered the blessings of community for the first time, really being part of a group of people who were doing something together and who were in and out of each other's homes and who cared for each other. Mm. Uh, so um, I've been, you know, for whatever reason, I have happened upon spiritual wisdom figures in my life who have taught me more and more and have initiated me more and mentored me more and um 
you know, and we get mentored by the books we read as well as by the people we meet. But mm-hmm. um, so, have I have I up have I upplayed the terror of my past enough yet? <laughs> I don't think that anybody uh, just thinking for a second about somebody growing up in Belfast during the Troubles uh, in a, a, a strong church context who was struggling with their sexuality. I'm not sure that any of us could, you know, come up with something that was more problematic than that. There, there, are, there are all sorts of problems in there for the for the emerging child, adolescent, whatever. Sure. Well, um, everyone, but everyone has their version of that. Yeah, well, well. There, yes, well, I was going to say, okay. yeah, because we, when we, when we met, we were coming, we, I was also in that period of transition from absolute certainty to ambiguity, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, and and that's that's why we started to talk, I think. But but what, one of the things that you write about beautifully in the book and that you've just touched on there is that uh, there are times when we have to uh, walk away from certainties that mm-hmm. are, 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 that feel like a shelter to us. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I I don't know about you, but I I'm I'm nostalgic for the for the for the the comfort of the certainties that I felt at, at that certain age. You know. Yeah. I, I understood what was happening to the world and what my part in its redemption was and and how and who to follow to get to the place I needed to go. Um, I don't understand any of those things anymore. <laughs> you know, I think yeah. there's a whole bunch of other things I understand <laughs> that are arguably, well, certainly feel more valuable, but I don't <laughs> understand those things. So, that, so there's a, in order to build a story shelter in the way that you're describing in order to give ourselves some sort of sense of protection and fortification yeah. it often means that we've got to tear down or allow to be teared down torn down the previous shelters that surrounded us right it's the only way to grow i mean you have to lose your first set of teeth before your second come in and um there's there are growing pains and at every stage of life now and sometimes they're really dramatic you know sometimes there is a like a break that needs to happen sometimes you need to flee with only the shirt on your back and if you're in (laughs) danger you know that's that's what i'd encourage you uh, to do and i would say to anybody if if you're in particularly in a religious context or a political one because the you know political communities are are getting more uh, are becoming more visible as as uh identity markers uh uh, i think in, in the current moment if if you're in a group and you're scared to leave it, that's almost certainly the reason that you should leave, right? If you feel fear of what will happen to you if you leave this, that's a sign that there's something in you that knows this is a, a an abusive environment. And, really, uh, really, yeah, really. I'm sure there are exceptions to that to that rule, but if you're part of a religious culture that has developed in you or that has inculcated in you an image of God that tells you that God's going to harm you if you leave this group. Um, okay, that's, that's, more, that's more specific. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I understand that. I, I think, yeah, I mean, there are people within supportive communities who would be afraid of leaving them for, for other reasons that who probably shouldn't flee or just because they felt that fear. Sure, sure. So maybe but, but you're talking about that specific, that's, yeah. You're scared yeah. you're going to get punished for leaving. Then. Right. Right. You really, you'd really want to seriously look at what, you know, what, what would be the rationale for the punishment? I'm not a fan of punishment. I prefer restorative justice anyway. But um, I think mm-hmm. that this, but you also, you don't necessarily have to leave the particular community that you're in. You might just want to move to the fringes of it. 
you might start yeah. to listen to other voices too. And you validate and authenticate these voices based on, uh, you know, age old teaching by their fruits, you shall know them. So ask yourself, is there more love being, being brought into the world by this way of thinking than by that way of thinking and uh, yeah. make your choice. You know, and yeah. often it's ambivalent. Often it's, I don't quite know yet. That's all right. That's all right, too. Uh, I think, I think hu human beings are, have, have been done a favor by uh, all the spiritual wisdom traditions uh, of, of the last 6,000 years because they all agree on a couple of central tenets, which is uh, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you or do do to other people what you would want them to do to you, which is a, a variation of love your neighbor as yourself. And then devote yourself to, to kind of a more universal love. So um, it's, a, it's actually not rocket science to, to, to look at something and see, is this moving more toward the, the expansion of love in the world? Or is it moving more away from it? Or is this particular tenet of it or this particular practice? And you have the except, right to make that decision for yourself. Except that people within within um, movements, within belief systems, within institutions, almost always feel like they're the heroes of their own story. So yeah. they'll almost always look out and think we're doing good in the world. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a, a, a Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch about um, SS um, stormtroopers. You know, and one of them's going, "Hang on a minute." Uh, I, I, we've got death's heads on our on our uniforms. I'm beginning to wor <laughs> worry that, that we're the bad guys. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and so the idea is I'd sketch about the Death Star canteen. Yeah. You know, everybody working within those things. I often mm -hmm. think, you know, coming from a kind of Christian, post-Christian tradition, I often think in this kind of Star Wars context, we think we're rebels for love and justice, mm -hmm. but we're actually working inside the Death Star canteen. Sure, sure. You know, so... You're not always going to know, are you? No, but I've said if you feel the stone in your shoe, if you're, if you're a person who's woken up to, oh, there's something not right here, that you know, one thought experiment you might do is to ask that question. You might ask other people who are on the outside of this group and ask them, what do they see? Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it doesn't, the fact that we will not know a comprehensive answer to it doesn't absolve us from responsibility for asking the question. And I don't think, I actually don't think we're speaking mostly to people who are um, um, unself-reflective stormtroopers. And actually one of the things that we should, we should get better at doing, or I'd like us to get better at doing is people who are in leadership in lots of kind of religious and political circles. Mm -hmm. I, I often feel the most empathy for them because it's even harder for them to face their own doubts mm. because they've got this added problem of they can't tell anybody about it, mm. you know? So, you know, my view would be if you want to co-create an emotionally, psychologically, spiritually healthy community, you should have a couple of elders in it, which is people who've been there and are a few steps down the road mm. uh, and a couple of uh, uh, novices in it. And then most of the people be kind of, where, where the rest of us are at mm. and be asking yourselves, what's, what's <clears throat> the calling that I have to serve the common good? 
What's the calling that you have to serve the common good? And how can we help each other? And then always be asking, what would one of the people we're trying to serve think of what it is we're trying to do to them? Yeah. <laughs> would yeah, they, would they thank would they thank us? Do they want this? <laughs> Does the old would I want, would I, yeah. would I want this? Would yeah. I want this? You know. Yeah. I mean, I should I should say that one of the reasons I think this book works beautifully well if you, is you have the you have the combination of if you like the kind of the theoretical the big thinking you also have uh the kind of archetypal or the mythical kind of resonances and the, and and you have the personal and you also have very practical um suggestions for the way people can organize their lives in order to reflect this but i, I was just going to invite you to talk about porch circles there for a minute yeah. because because you're there you're talking about uh, groups of maybe three, four, five, up to twelve people who yeah. take it upon themselves to think reflectively. It's kind of like an, a, an adaptation of old-fashioned fellowship groups from uh -huh. back in the church yeah. day, isn't it? But it's but it's something else than that. It was just an idea that emerged for my husband Brian and I and a number of other people over, over some time. Where I, I I came to the view there's so much unnecessary suffering in the world. Necessary suffering is one thing; it's just going to happen. And that's, and that's kind of like what our spiritual practices are for. And we empathize with each other. But unnecessary suffering that comes from people not knowing how to ask for help and being uh, indoctrinated and enculturated in an individualistic society that mm. says, thus far, no further, right? Yeah, mm. let's be good neighbors, but I'm never going to talk to you about my money problems. I'm never going to talk to you about my uh, sexual anxiety. I'm never going to talk to you about my deep grief. And you're never going to talk to me about it either. And... What's even worse than the suffering that's going on in my house would be if you knew about it, I'd feel worse, right? And we're trying to flip that on its head and say, actually, uh, that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to say bullshit, uh, that that's, that's, that's no way to live and that there are, there's actually a fairly simple path out of that about connecting mm -hmm. with each other. The challenge is we haven't been taught how to connect. So I'll say really briefly, what we invite people to do is form groups of three or up to eight or 12 and meet for a cup of coffee or a meal and ask four questions. The question one, what's going well? If you were to use the language of St. Ignatius of Loyola, you would say, what are the sources of consolation in my life? And just limit it to one thing. The second question, what's not going well? Or what's a challenge or what's difficult? If Ignatius was in the room, he would say, what are the sources of desolation in my life? There's a trick with this question. The point is not to induce the feeling of despair and to have a circle <laughs> of people going, oh, this is a terrible thing in my life, and this is the terrible thing in my life. Yeah, the yeah. point is to step outside it and to name it. And if, if, if feeling the grief is the thing that will give you life that night, cool, it's welcome. But we, there's, a, there's a shift in our culture that I think needs to happen around how do we even answer the question, how are you doing? Because we usually lie in one of two ways. We say, oh, it's fantastic. Or we deceive ourselves by talking about the one thing that annoyed us this week as if it was the Third World War. Uh, question number three, uh, what are you called to do to serve the common good? And over time, when groups meet together and get to know each other, we get to learn each other's gifts and each other's concerns. You're particularly good at this. You particularly care about this. This is the thing that you should do around this. And we also get to learn, actually, you know what? You're not really that good at this. And that's okay, because you're good at these other things. Or let's help you recalibrate the way you do that. One of the reasons I have a husband is that when there's a public event I'm speaking at, 
he sits in the front row and does this when it's time for me to stop talking. Um, so that's a, that's a good example of, I think I'm pretty good as a talker, but I might be too good. And sometimes I need to be restrained from saying where you know, where is he right now and what is he's, he doing? Well, I can't see him right now. <laughs> ah. I, can, I can see you. And the last question, uh, the last question is how can we help each other? And this mm. is one that that, that uh, we're invited to take really seriously because I think in our culture, we'll say things like, "Hey, if you need anything, will you let me know?" And then we kind of hope against hope that the person doesn't say, "Well, actually, here's the thing I need." In the circles that I've been a part of, we really do say, does anybody want to offer some help? Does anybody want to ask for some help? And you might not get the help you're asking for, and you may not, you don't have to take the help that you're offered. Sometimes mm -hmm. just, the, just the saying of it is adequate. And we've had anything from people needing a babysitter to someone in deep grief needing someone to walk with them through their deep grief to someone not able to pay their rent and I really feel like you don't need a third level degree in group facilitation to ask these four questions. And you don't need to be of a religious faith to ask these questions either. But when people ask them in circles over time, love expands. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.